0: When our first guest was a junior in college, a friend asked him what he planned to do with his life. He said he'd just read a magazine article in a dentist's office. It made him think he'd become an actuary. That, his friend replied, would be really boring. The friend convinced him to spend the next summer at the Earth Observatory in Palisades, New York, affiliated with Columbia University. That was 1952. He's been there ever since. After earning three degrees at Columbia, then joining its faculty, he rose to become one of the world's greatest geoscientists, often called the grandfather of climate science. He may be best known among his peers for identifying what he calls a great conveyor belt of ocean currents that crucially influences the Earth's climate. The discovery is regarded as one of the most significant in the history of oceanography. He has been a pioneer in methods to detect how the Earth's climate has changed over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. He has shown how climate can change not just gradually, but abruptly with potentially dire consequences. His voice was among the first, and it remains among the most forceful in sounding the alarms about the perils posed by the rise of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. And he has not only used deep scientific analysis to highlight the problem, He has increasingly focused on the search for effective solutions. We honor the man who has been called the world's leading interpreter of the Earth's operation as a biological, chemical, and physical system. Columbia's Newberry Professor of Geology, Wallace Broker. Wally Broker, really the father of my own field climate and paleoclimate,
1: chemical oceanography, brilliant man, huge legacy of achievement. Prescient Poseidon of geoscience, fathoming the depths and currents of climate change. He has peered far into our planet's past and compelled our concern for its future. Wallace Smith. Broker, Doctor of Science.
2: I heard last night, it was 1975, quite, some time ago, that his first articles on global warming would have come out. That's right. In
1: 1975,
0: he wrote an article talking about the- What leads coming, us to cooperate? that was coming. It's pressing. Our next guest, an illustrious political scientist, has shaped the understanding of what induces us to come together rather than to go our separate ways. His career itself has epitomized cooperation in his remarkable range of fertile collaborations with scholars within and beyond his own field. His publications on the evolution and complexity of cooperation stand among the world's most frequently cited writings in the social sciences. And he has brought his theoretical insights to bear on a sweeping range of problems, from the avoidance of nuclear war to the nature of biological evolution, from international trade to cybersecurity to cooperation among cancer cells. Past president of the American Political Science Association, he is the extraordinarily rare social political scientist to have been honored with the National Medal of Science. His methods draw on complexity theory, game theory, and computer modeling in ways that have continually shaped the frontier of his field. As a pair of colleagues recently wrote, it is hard to name an active political scientist anywhere in the world whose ideas have had such a powerful impact on such a wide range of human inquiry and action. It's not only academics who have felt his touch. When Bono was asked the secret to U2's longevity as a rock band, he reportedly cited our guest's seminal book on the evolution of cooperation. We proudly welcome a rock star of social science, the Walgreen Professor for the Study of Human Understanding at the University of Michigan, Robert Axelrod. Right behind him is Robert Putnam, who certainly has
2: furthered that field of the evolution of cooperation. Absolutely.
1: Impelled by the perils of nuclear war, intrigued by biology's complex puzzles, a paramount scholar of cooperation and modeling, and a model of scholarly cooperation. Robert M. Axelrod, Doctor of Laws.
2: Beautiful citation.
0: What's that smell? You should ask our next guest. One of the the world's foremost experts on the biology of sensory perception. She discovered how molecules in the environment are detected by tiny receptors in the nose, then translated by the brain into specific smells. Her work marked a breakthrough in solving a long standing scientific enigma. It showed that the olfactory system in mammals is far more complex than had been understood earlier with hundreds of different receptors responsible for detecting tens of thousands of different odors. Born in Seattle to a mother who loved word puzzles and a father who was an electrical engineer, she developed an early fascination with science. As a postdoc at Columbia, she played a crucial role in first identifying odor receptors. Then as a member of the Harvard Medical School faculty for a decade. She broke open her field by showing how the brain organizes signals from those receptors to let us perceive a vast multitude of scents. For her pathbreaking discoveries about the olfactory system, she shared a Nobel Prize in 2004. And thus she discovered the sweet smell of success. Concluding her Nobel autobiography, she wrote, I sincerely hope that my receiving this prize will send a message to young women everywhere that the doors are open to them and that they should follow their dreams. We welcome back to Harvard an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, a professor at the University of Washington, and a leading member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Linda Buck.
2: Linda Buck, a brilliant medical researcher. How we recognize smell. I mean, imagine. And she's being escorted by uh, Catherine Dulac.
1: Aficionata of olfaction, pioneer in the perception of common and uncommon sense. Her research on receptors has revolutionized what science knows of the nose. Linda Buck, (laughs) Doctor of Science. A really brilliant citation. (laughs) That's
2: wonderful. What science knows of the nose.
0: You can see on stage Linda Greenhouse, two people back. She grew up here in Cambridge, the daughter of a poet and a Harvard economics professor. She studied history and literature at Radcliffe, then received her PhD in fine arts from Harvard. 50 years after her first Harvard doctorate, we welcome her home for an honorary second to recognize her career as one of the most original and influential art historians of her generation. Decades ago, she seized the attention of art scholars with her book, The Art of Describing, which one critic called the most brilliant, erudite, and provocative attempt to characterize 17th century Dutch art in many years. Her publications have transformed the understanding of works by Dutch masters such as Vermeer and Rembrandt, as well as other painters, including Rubens, Velasquez, Tiepolo, and Vasari. She is perhaps best known for an approach that features what has been called radical close looking, focusing intently on pictures, paintings, as pictures that describe the world, rather than as works that embed narratives and hidden meanings. From her early days, choosing to focus on Dutch art when Italian art was more in vogue, she has dared to be different, challenging the conventions of her field and inspiring independence of mind in others. You can't write anything first rate, she has said, without getting attacked. From her first article, one colleague writes, she has surprised, delighted, and vexed her readers with novel readings and viewings of artists about whom it would seem we had said it all. We honor a professor emerita at the University of California at Berkeley, and a longtime member of the Harvard family, Svetlana Alpers.
2: Art historian, twice doctorate.
1: Connoisseur of the craft of informed looking, transformative force in the history of art. She posits that pictures need eyes and not words, and spurs us to see the familiar anew. Svetlana leontiev Alpers, Doctor of Arts. Beautifully eloquent.
0: Our next guest is perhaps best known as the nimble fingered bass player for the legendary musical group, The Professors of Bluegrass. (laughs) He also moonlights as president of a modestly selective university in South Central Connecticut. (laughs) Perhaps best known for having come agonizingly close to completing an undefeated Ivy football season last fall. (laughs) But but not quite. His professors of bluegrass are revered for such favorites as, I'm blue, I'm lonesome. I've endured, man in the middle. Dim lights, thick smoke, that wistful Tune dear to the hearts of fundraisers everywhere, I Ate Broke. (laughs) And that old classic, I'm just an old chunk of coal, but I'm going to be a diamond someday. (laughs) All these tunes richly evoke the boundless pleasures and the occasional perplexities of his day job. His service since July 2013 as the 23rd president of our dearly beloved, and occasionally rivalrous sibling, Yale University. After college at Stanford, he landed in New Haven some 35 years ago. Since then, he has done just about everything a Yale man possibly could do. two master's degrees, a PhD, professor of psychology, founder of the Health, Emotion, and Behavior Laboratory, leading figure in interdisciplinary research centers on AIDS and cancer, department chair, dean of the college, dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, and of course, the exalted role of the university provost. <laughs> He is an extraordinary scholar, a pioneer in developing the concept of emotional intelligence, or EI. He is an extraordinary teacher, winner of Yale teaching prizes, and mentor to countless grateful students. Above all, he is an extraordinary human being, an embodiment of the emotional intelligence that he studies in others, and someone who, in one colleague's words, is just an astonishingly human guy. Not only that, but he assures us he has already signed up for CS50 next fall. (laughs) With familial pride and a hearty bow, wow, wow. (laughs) The Yale fight a native son of Cambridge, Massachusetts, our friend and colleague, Peter Salovey. That is wonderful. Do you know him, Michelle? I know Peter. I serve on his uh, Yale's Advisory Council. I meet with him twice a year. He really has an extraordinary commitment to
1: the quality of education for undergraduates there. Superlative psychologist and bulldog in chief who likes his veritas with a dash of Luke's, a warm and wise Eli of high EI, whose world, like his grass, is ever blue. Peter Salovey, Doctor of Laws.
2: You know, I think she writes these citations herself, and they are quite wonderful, the citations. Beautiful, poetic. Yeah, that, what a She great must be guy. careful,
1: he may
0: get her back someday. Yeah, I'm sure. You can't understand most of the important things from a distance, his grandmother used to tell him. You have to get close. Since his days as a student at our law school and Kennedy School, mm-hmm. He has devoted his life to getting closer and closer to the American criminal justice system, and to scores and scores of people accused or convicted of crimes, many of them sentenced to die. The closer he has come to that system and to the people within it, the more resolutely he has affirmed his core belief. The true measure of our character, he writes, is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. That belief has shaped his career as one of the nation's most admired and effective public interest lawyers. Devoted to serving death row inmates, juvenile offenders, people wrongly convicted or charged with violent crimes, poor people denied effective representation, and others whose trials have been marked by racial bias or prosecutorial misconduct. He is the founder and leader of the Equal Justice Initiative based in Montgomery, Alabama. His organization carries forward its work in four broad domains, race and poverty, children in prison, mass incarceration, and the death penalty. In the words of one criminal justice expert, he surely has done as much as any other living American to vindicate the innocent and temper justice with mercy for the guilty. And in forums far beyond the courtroom, he has spoken and written with searing eloquence about the meaning of justice and mercy in a nation so often focused on punishment and retribution. He urges that we face up to the volatile interplay of race, poverty, and justice in America. And he does so in a spirit not of rancor, but of hope. We proudly honor Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, really an extraordinary leader.
2: And a great model, I mean, for so many of these law students for whom. Public interest law is really primary. Of course there are some who are going to corporate law, and Just an inspiring this is really of an inspiration. Service.
1: His deep conviction that justice must be done has undone convictions of the wrongly accused. Tireless, dauntless, his eyes on the prize, he presses on, the upward way, to point us toward a higher ground. Brian Stevenson, Doctor of Laws. What a wonderful choice. Really, our commitment to public service.
0: She started out teaching high school in Deep Creek, Virginia. A stone's throw from wetlands wetlands known as the Great Dismal Swamp. In the years to follow, she emerged as a preeminent figure in American education and a historic figure at Harvard. A graduate of Purdue and Columbia, she led Barnard College's education program for a decade. She built an academic career as one of the premier scholars of the history of American education and of women in education. In, 19, in 1974, she became a vice president of Radcliffe College and a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. In 1977, She accepted President Carter's appointment to direct the National Institute of Education, a federal agency dedicated to education research. She returned to Cambridge, and in 1982 was named Dean of Harvard's Faculty of Education, the first woman ever to serve as dean of one of Harvard's faculties. She led our ed school with distinction for nearly a decade. She sharpened its focus on K-12 public schooling. She deepened its attention to the persistent inequalities in American education. Her trailblazing has never been about seizing the limelight, one colleague writes. It has always been focused on bringing her enormous energy, political instincts, and good judgment to the labors of leadership, scholarship and community building. She has served as president of both the Spencer Foundation and the National Academy of Education, as chair of the Carnegie Foundation, as vice president of both the American Historical Association and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. When educational institutions look for leadership and wisdom, they know where to turn. Today, it is our turn to salute our own Charles Warren Professor of the History of American Education Emerita, Patricia Graham.
2: Here she is. Her escort right behind her is um, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot from the School of Education. But Pat Graham, very well-known in this community and in this university.
1: How schooling can foster both knowledge and virtue has set the syllabus for her singular life. An adroit leader and trusty trustee, she has not just illuminated history, but made it. Patricia Albire Graham, Doctor of Laws. Most years, Harvard includes at least one member of our
0: retired faculty in the list of honorary degrees. And this year, it's Patricia Graham. As a boy in the former Belgian Congo, he accompanied his father, a pastor, to minister to the sick. One day, a sick child asked the pastor for medicine. The pastor explained he was not a doctor. And so, thought the pastor's son, a doctor is what I must someday be. As he grew up, he saw the distressingly poor medical resources for women in his country. So he went to France, where he studied to become a gynecologist. In the years since, he has emerged as a heroic figure in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There he has devoted his heart and soul to caring for women and girls who have survived the brutal sexual violence endemic to the conflict that has plagued the country for almost two decades. Militias and gangs have deployed rape as a weapon of war, bringing devastation to individuals, families, entire communities. He founded the Pansy Hospital known worldwide for its leadership in treating survivors of sexual violence. There. He directs a program that tends not only to his patients' physical abuse, but to their psychological trauma as well. And he does not stop there. He seeks the survivor's reintegration into society through vocational programs and access to social services. Countless women and girls have been the beneficiaries of his care. Far beyond his hospital. He has become an impassioned international advocate for Congolese women, demanding attention to the barbarity that they continue to endure and urging an end to the violence. In 2012, armed intruders took his daughters hostage. They shot his security guard to death. They fired at him, and he narrowly escaped assassination before the assailants fled the scene. Still, he carries on. A recipient of the Sakharov Prize for Human Rights and numerous honors worldwide, he maintains his faith and courage in the face of the unspeakable. The power of darkness will be defeated, he insists. We must respond to violence with love. We honor Dr. Dennis Mukwege. Dennis Mukwege, founder
1: of the Ponzi Foundation. Extraordinary,
2: mm. both in, as, a, as a surgeon, but also, look if everyone is rising, it's, it's extraordinary. He's, his escort is Jennifer Leaning, who is the head of the FXB Center for, uh, for Human Rights at the School of Public Health. That's and right. That,
1: and Jennifer was the, uh, was the head of the high you humanitarian know, Institute. She, an emergency room doctor, so much experience in wartime areas, dealing with disaster relief. This is just an, an inspired choice. Yes. An incarnation of courage and compassion, giving succor to his country's women of valor. For him, it is always a time to heal and a time to build up, a time to love, and a time for peace. Dennis Mukwege, Doctor of Science.
2: That combination of science and
0: service in medicine and human rights is so critical.
1: The The combination of compassion with also
0: If you've ever doubted whether the words diva and divine share the same origin. You need only listen to our next guest sing, as you have. (laughs) I cannot imagine a more satisfying calling than my own, she writes, beauty, humanity, and history every day combined with the cathartic joy of singing. Multiply her own joy by millions. And you begin to measure the exhilaration that her singing brings to admirers around the world. She grew up the daughter of two vocal music teachers in a home where singing filled the air. At age three, she gave her first solo performance in the indelible role of Susie Snowflake. (laughs) By grade school, it was The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady. After singing jazz in college and graduate study at Eastman and Juilliard, she ascended to opera's upper echelons as the Contessa in the Houston Grand Opera's Marriage of Figaro, and then as Mimi in the New York Opera's La Boheme. Before long, she was gracing the stage of the Metropolitan Opera, where she has by now made more than 220 performances in 21 roles, among her hundreds of memorable performances and her scores of leading roles on stages worldwide. Her vast repertoire ranges from Strauss to Mozart, from Handel to Masne, from Verdi to Vorjak. Did I hear Vorjak? Claimed by critics, beloved by audiences, she is known for a soprano voice described as sumptuous, magnificent, transcendent. A voice likened to glistening silver or double cream. Opera star, recording artist, champion of new music, sometime jazz and indie rock singer, author, television host, teacher, Literacy advocate, fashion icon, Broadway leading lady, recipient of the National Medal of Arts, possessor of what many have simply called America's beautiful voice. Singers, she once wrote, have a complicated relationship with applause. I ask that you join me in making this an extremely complicated moment. For Renee Fleming, sometimes called the
2: People's Diva, because she has such a, a voice that is so appealing to everyone,
1: consummate contessa, soprano, soprano sublime, exalting her art for exultant audiences. Renowned for her arias, but not for her airs. When her voice soars, our hearts sing. Renee Fleming, Doctor of Music.
2: Such an inspiration. And of course, with Lowell House, we have an opera every year in the house. Inspiration for them, too. Absolutely.
0: He has lived what he calls an improbable life. He grew up in poverty on Chicago's South Side. (laughs) After junior high, he found his way to Milton Academy in Massachusetts, thanks to an organization fittingly called A Better Chance. He tells the story of heading off to his first day of class at Milton, mindful that boys were required to wear jackets and ties. He arrived at class in his best jacket, a sporty blue windbreaker fresh off the rack from Sears. He looked around at the blue blazers and tweed and realized he'd entered a totally unfamiliar world. Not just a different place, he has said, but a different planet. He learned to navigate Planet Milton, then Harvard College. After a fellowship year in Sudan, he conquered Harvard Law School. He launched his legal career as a public-spirited young lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. After time in private practice, He rose to become the nation's top civil rights officer as assistant attorney general for civil rights. After senior positions in the corporate world, he made his first bid for elected office as a relative unknown, mounting a grassroots campaign for governor of Massachusetts. As we all know, against the odds, he won. In his inaugural speech, he invoked the early Massachusetts settlers who saw their new home as a shining city on a hill. To this kid from the south side of Chicago, he said, Massachusetts is my shining city on a hill. And for the next eight years, he invested his all in making it shine. In education, healthcare, innovation, economic opportunity, equality and inclusion, life sciences and technology, environmental responsibility, perhaps most of all, in seeking to inspire a sense of true commonwealth, a community in which each cares about the well-being of all. At our best, he has said, we are for each other. We are about seeing our own stake in our neighbors' dreams and struggles, as well as our own. That belief not only echoes through his public pronouncements, it has shown through every aspect of his remarkable, if improbable, life. It is a special pleasure to recognize the 71st governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and of at least equal note a fellow alumnus of Dunster House, <laughs> the Honorable Deval Patrick. Extraordinary story. The faculty giving him a standing ovation for his
1: service.
2: Deval, when he was here, uh, they didn't call them first gen, the first generation of his family to attend college, and he was. And now that first generation is 14% of this graduating class.
1: Exemplar and exponent of the American dream, embracing commonwealth as a lived ideal, he has worn his excellency with humility and grace while kindling in others a reason to believe. Deval L. Patrick, Doctor of Laws.
2: Governor Patrick,
1: the final honor I be recipient.
2: And he will, of course, be giving the address this afternoon at 2 o'clock.
1: In the name of this Society of Scholars, I declare that these persons are entitled to the rights and privileges pertaining to their several degrees, and that their names are to be forever born on its role of honorary members.